Hey, it's me, Tim Ranzetta, co-founder of NextGen Personal Finance. Thank you for tuning in to this NGPF podcast. Today, you're going to hear from Yanelli. She is joined by Julian and Kirsten Saunders. They wrote the book, Cashing Out, Win the Wealth Game by Walking Away. Julian and Kirsten dig into key parts of their book, including what they call the four purposes of income. They also share their thoughts on how financial literacy is one component in solving socioeconomic issues, but is not the sole solution. Enjoy. All right. Welcome to the speaker series. Kirsten, Julian, I'm so excited to have y'all back again to NGPF because you've been here once before, but we're so excited to have y'all tonight. Yes. Happy to be here. We are super happy to be here. I wanted to talk a little bit about like the context around the book first. So you all both are known for being, uh, you know, key influencers and speakers in the FIRE community. So tell us a little bit about what the FIRE community means for anybody who is new to it, hasn't heard about it yet, and how you both got involved in the FIRE movement. Sure. Uh, so FIRE is an acronym for financial independence, retire early. Um, I, I'm not exactly clear or sure where or when it started. Um, I know when we found it, which was really in the early 2010s. Um, and I'm the one that actually stumbled upon it. I remember starting up my journey at the time I was working uh, in corporate America. And I just knew very early on that I needed to make sure that I was in full control of my earning potential. And so I started going down a rabbit hole of trying to learn about real estate. Uh, and I eventually did become a real estate investor. But while I was exploring the internet and all the crazy things that are there, it sort of led me into this interesting corner of uh, the internet, which was really around uh, investing in other ways that people can uh, earn money. And there was a tiny pocket, uh, niche group of people who had figured out ways to be really frugal, uh, to get really savvy with uh, the way that they were spending their money, the way that they were investing their money to include real estate investing, all so that they could retire early and then live on their investments. And I was just intrigued by that. I think at the time I was like in between uh, being frustrated and exhausted from graduate school and also like, overwhelmed with being in corporate America and looking at this really steep ladder. And so all of that to say, uh, we found the movement, we were intrigued by it. We also noticed very early that there were not very many people at the time that looked like us. And a lot of the advice that was being given did not necessarily incorporate some of the challenges and experiences uh, that we went through. And so we kind of took it upon ourselves to say, okay, well, not only are we interested in this, but we think this is valuable for people in our community. How do we incorporate our lived experience and the lived experience of our community into some of these teachings and into some of this language so that it could be a little bit more uh, relatable uh, with the goal of inspiring more people to pursue and achieve financial independence. So that was kind of the early beginnings of it. I would say in the 20, uh, 2010s, we started with a blog. Uh, and then that very quickly grew into uh, a podcast. We now have two podcasts. We have multiple video series and so on. And so our, our gift, if you will, is to be really creative entrepreneurs, uh, to find really fun and intriguing ways to talk about money uh, and, and to try to reach people who we don't really think are being reached right now with a lot of the content uh, that is uh, centered around personal finance. I love that. Now, Kirsten, I want you to jump in here because I get the sense, and maybe it's because of the book cover where I see like Kirsten is a little bit more fab. And then we got Julian over here, a little bit more the regular part of the rich regular. 
first of all, <laughs> all of that clothes is rented. All of it is rented. <laughs> I know, but you know, Kirsten just, you know, jumps off the page at you because she looks And that cool. jacket Not is that pretty expensive, but I'll let you have it. <laughs> so here's here's what I'm thinking. I hear a lot of people complaining and more maybe not complaining, but like critiquing the fire movement because they think that it doesn't feel attainable or they feel that it's just like extreme. Like, really, you want me to be super frugal? You want me to not enjoy life? Like, I'm not even willing to do that. That sounds like misery, right? And and so what's the end goal here? And they kind of miss it, I think, in like the point of the fact that it's supposed to be empowering and allow you to take control back, not feel that way. So I wonder how you respond or uh, what you think about all of that type of criticism. Yeah, I, I think it used to be very valid. I know I certainly had it when Julian brought the fire idea to me back in the early 2010s. I was like, absolutely not. This sounds ridiculous. And that was because at that time, a large subset of the bloggers or the people that were creating content were already very naturally frugal. They, you know, had already bought into the sustainability, tiny house, van life, nomadic life. And so I just couldn't relate to the idea of, you know, sustainable toilet paper and <laughs> weighing my beans to make sure that they stayed under $2 a day. I just could not relate to that type of content. And then at the same time, in order to be heard in all the noise that came after the 2008 financial crisis, you almost had to be extreme. You almost had to go and say like, look, if I follow this plan, I can retire by the time I'm 30 or by the time I'm 32 or whatever age they had in mind. And what made it so extreme was the fact that their timeline was so short. If you really didn't need to retire in the next five years for the purposes of you know, internet clout, then the, you could lower the savings rate and you could turn down the, the extremity of, of the method. And so once I've found other creators, once I talked to other women, and once I actually met people who had retired in real life and didn't necessarily have blogs, I could see myself more following this, this path. Makes a lot of sense. And I think that that is very far reaching because I think a lot of people have different personal experiences growing up where money means something to them about what type of lifestyle they, you know, can have um, or want to have and money allows them to do that. So if you take that away, it, it sort of confuses people about, well, what's the point of money then? If that that's if that's what it has always meant to me and you're taking that away, then money really means nothing to me. And so I, I don't get it. Uh, so I really do. I think that that is an important insight. Um, but I also think that it's kind of like the constant personal finance advice that we just keep hearing over and over and over again, the constant blogs. The, and, and the thing is, it, there's so much of it in the personal finance community. But obviously, if you're somebody who has not tapped into that or, or really found it yet, you might not know about it. But once you do find it, there's plenty of tips and tricks and steps and 15 step program and nine weeks to debt free and all kinds of that, like exactly what to do with your money, what to do with your credit cards, how many bank accounts to open, these like very clear cut steps to success with money exist and feels like there, there's so much of that. I noticed your book is not that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm curious about the structure of the book, really the decision to create content that does not, you know, for, force the horse to the river and force him to drink. It's not, you're not doing that. Um, and it's, it's beautiful. It's refreshing. I think you, you did that really well and we need that, but I just wonder how you came to the decision to do that and why you were motivated to make sure your book didn't feel like that typical personal finance book. 
Yeah. So, so one, thank you for recognizing that. Um, it's something that we try to be consistent at doing. And we know <clears throat> that it can actually be quite frustrating for people who are looking for very prescriptive uh, advice. Uh, but but th there is a reason why we do that. Uh, one, because there's plenty of that stuff out there, right? Like if you're looking for nine ways, 10 ways, 15 ways, 101 ways, you can find that on the internet. Um, I'm also a trained marketer. And so we're pretty clear on the, we were pretty much focused on everyone, as I said in, in the opening statements, that was not, that we felt was not being reached by what was already being created uh, enlarged by personal finance media. And we know that from personal experience, we would take a lot of that stuff and say, wow, look at this. Can you uh, imagine what this couple is doing? This is fantastic. You should do this too. And we got a lot more like, that's not for me. That's not for me. That's not for me. Right. So it wasn't just that, Hey, uh, people didn't see themselves in the stories that were largely being told. It was that people always just continue to find some reason uh, to, to basically say that this approach, this tactic, this thing is not for me. And what we realized is that, um, you know, despite the, 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 the cliche of like, when we know better, we do better. And I would imagine as educators, there's a significant percentage of people who believe in that too, right? Because you teach. So the idea is that when you teach people, they get it and they understand it. And naturally that leads to them doing better. But if you study marketing and if you study behavioral uh, psychology, you understand that it's just not that simple. If that were true, we would all be drinking more water. We would all be eating more vegetables. We would all never jaywalk. We would all do all of those things, right? We'd be at standing desks. Correct. We'd be at standing desks right now. Right. And so what we wanted to do was to focus more so on storytelling. Yeah. Um, and specifically storytelling that address some of the social and the cultural issues that get in the way of people knowing, uh, I'm sorry, they get in the way of people doing what they actually know to be true. Mm -hmm. That I think is really much more difficult, by the way, than simply giving prescribed advice that is in many cases void of that kind of nuance. Uh, so that's really been our focus in just about everything that we do. Uh, and the last thing I'll say is we just find that to be more fun. And so if, if what we're going to do is if we're not going to enjoy the work that we're doing, we know it's just not, it's not going to be good and it's not going to be sustainable. That's so right. I didn't want to create a bunch of listicles. I didn't want to create 101 ways of doing anything. That's just not very exciting to me. We were far more intrigued by the creative challenge and quite honestly, the emotional um, challenges uh, that we know a lot of people have. And hopefully if we, uh, what we do is we try to aim for the heart and not for the head. And by doing that, we think um, it, we, we make the message last uh, a lot longer and it leads to people actually taking action. I'll also just add that in today's world, this idea that you can have strict, rigid financial rules of thumb that apply to everyone across all regions, across all ages, across all races, that's an outdated idea. All of the isms that we know about, sexism, ageism, ableism, racism, all of those things contribute to us having a different experience. And so to tell somebody that, oh, your housing should be under 30% of your take home, well, that might be easy to do in somewhere like Atlanta, but practically impossible in somewhere like San Francisco. And so the idea of the book was to give some tried and true <clears throat> rules, things that we know are going to be consistent for the long-term things like spend less than you earn, <laughs> like, you know, take care to account for inflation. Those solid rules are in there, but then there's the idea of these rituals, these practices, a way to check in with yourself and ask yourself what's the best move for you. It's a, it's a kind of a, a new version of empowerment that actually 
empowers the reader to decide versus the reader looking for a guru or an expert to decide to decide on their behalf. Yeah, I really love that. The rituals, if y'all um, didn't see in the chat, it's um, it's the word rich in there, right? So it's really about the idea of not just creating routines around your money, but really sitting down and being intentional about how you're going to be able to create this wealth plan for yourself. Um, so I love that. And it comes out throughout, it shows up throughout the book, all of the different rituals. Um, so before we jump into the book, I do want to name, and it kind of connects to the point that y'all just made, which is, you know, to really uh, speak to the heart and then the mind come, kind of comes later, because I think within our work with NGPF, the community and teachers, our work is in the classroom, right? In, in the traditional education setting. So it does tend to focus a lot on the, the mind, right? Like what we need to put into your brain, you need to memorize, you know, the, the compound interest formula, you need to understand, you know, the five factors of credit, you need to know the difference between a savings and a checking account. And these are things that are sort of just wrote, like you just memorize them. And your point that you make in the book, and you have said this in a lot of the speaking engagements that I've seen y'all speak at, where you say, yes, you can know it, but financial literacy and memorizing all of these things isn't like some magic wand. Like, isn't you just, just wave this magic wand and just solve all the problems? It's not going to eliminate the Black wealth gap. So many people say financial literacy is the, the solution, right? Or, or it's going to eliminate poverty, you know? And I think that your point is like, well, let's be realistic about financial literacy education and where it's placed, like what place it has. Um, so talk to that a little bit where you think it plays a part, what that part is, and um, just kind of expand on that idea that y'all don't believe it's, it is the one sole solution for these issues. Yeah, I'm trying to think of <clears throat> exactly how we've said it before, but I think I, I think what we've landed on is the idea that if, if you believe that um, undereducation or miseducation is the problem, then naturally it's going to lead you to the idea that education is the solution. And so what we've learned, again, as marketers to say, well, I, I, gosh, I remember maybe 10 years ago, you know, when we were looking to see, like, were there personal finance books uh, published recently that were addressing these kinds of issues, or even just like, how many personal finance books that were out there, right? And so, gosh, in the last 10 years, we've seen hundreds of books being created. We've seen hundreds of courses being created by notable figures. We've seen more programming and seminars and trips and all of these things. And none of them have improved the finances of the audience at large, right? Which I think just really sort of speaks to the broader issue is that this is not just an education issue. So there was that, but there were also just a lot of the anecdotal uh, issues that we would have, like some of the people that we would be having uh, conversations with were some of the smartest people in the world. They were VPs at companies that managed multi-million dollar budgets, right? So you could assume, hey, why is it that you can manage a multi-million dollar budget and lead this team, but you can't seem to figure out that there's more money coming out of your checking account than there is going in, right? There's clearly other issues that need to be addressed here. And so again, that's, that's why we tend to focus way more heavily on a lot of the social issues that get in the way of people making better financial decisions and a lot of the cultural issues that really kind of shape their mindset. Because I think those are the things that really need to be tweaked in order for people to actually act on the things that they already understand and know to be true. We see it at all ages. We see it with high schoolers. We see it with adults. We see it with all, at all classes, right? Working class, upper class, rich people. It, this is known issue and we see uh, that th those people are simply not being reached because so much of the solutions that are presented to them are education-based, right? 
And so uh, it's something that we were mindful of. And we actually saw it as an opportunity as creative entrepreneurs. Uh, so yeah, it's, 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 a, it's, a pre- it's a prevalent issue. Uh, it's something that we are attempting to solve, but we're certainly not, uh, we're not superheroes, right? There's only so much that even we can do. Our hope is really just to inspire as many people as, as, as we can reasonably accomplish and hopefully inspire a few other people and creators and writers and things to sort of think differently about um, the content that they create to make sure that they're reaching the people who need help as well. That makes a lot of sense. And also it makes me think about our like homework as educators, what we need to do to make sure that the education we're providing is not just the financial literacy knowledge, but that we're also teaching students about those social issues and teaching students about the cognitive biases that get in the way, even though we know we're supposed to save, but then we move money from our savings to our checking account because we want to buy some Beyonce tickets. I knew you were going to say that. (laughs) Everybody's talking about Beyonce tickets right now on social media. You know, I have gotten like 14 text messages today. Did you register for the Beyonce tickets? I'm like, y'all better leave me alone. Did you max out your Roth IRA? Don't make me put you on blast. (laughs) (laughs) But it's things like that where there's pressure and we want to have fun. We want to have a social life. We want to balance the things out, but it feels like it's hard to balance if everything is financial, you know, responsibility, and that doesn't leave a lot of room for the fun stuff. So I think in the classroom, we as educators have to incorporate that to make this realistic for young people to feel like, oh, okay, well, I I, I can understand that it requires balance and that it's going to be challenging. But if I understand how it's going to be difficult, I'll be prepared at least to deal with it versus thinking, oh, it just comes down to these rules. If, if I memorize them, life's going to be real easy when it comes to money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Setting them up for success that way. Um, okay, well, let's get into the book because that's what we're here to talk about. Your opening line is so powerful. You talk about a statistic that you stumbled across in 2017 about uh, median Black wealth in the United States, which was on track to be $0 by the year 2053. Why was that so striking? And you just you chose to open the book with that stat. So I'm sure it struck you in a way where you felt like you had to speak on it. It's Black History Month, right? February, every year we're talking about celebrating and honoring, you know, issues in the Black community and folks in the Black community that are doing amazing work. If median Black wealth is on track to be $0 by 2053, that makes it very difficult to do that. Um, so talk to us about that stat and choosing to open your book with that. Yeah, it was uh, it was as jarring then as when we first saw it as it is now, because we know that the pandemic in the last few years have kind of probably accelerated that date. They haven't done any new studies, but what used to be 2053 is probably something like 2045 or even 2040. And now that I have a son, we have a five-year-old son, I recognize that like, okay, he'll be 18, 19, 20. Like he, I can, I can see and feel those dates far differently than the first time that I read them. And it's incredibly sad knowing the history, given that it's Black History Month, knowing the history of Black Americans in this country and what we've contributed to know that we have nothing to show for it, to know that we will have a median net worth of zero dollars is just a tragic story. And what we'd like to do is kind of interrupt that in the middle of it and say like, look, I don't, I'm not a policymaker, right? I'm not in Capitol Hill. I'm not in Washington, DC. I do not have a policy solution. That's what's going to get all of us collectively out of this mess. But I do have an individual solution for those that can. If you are able to invest, if you are able to live frugally and adopt some of the principles that we talk about in cash, cashing out, 
you can be on the other side of that equation and give your family and your lineage a fighting chance. I love that. Um, you also talk about how you want this book to be the wake up call for those who maybe haven't had one in their own lives just yet. And you both talk about your literal wake up call with Julian's mom calling in the night about uh, needing to see a cardiologist and y'all had to go with her. And then later on, um, Kirsten, about your dad, Blue, and how there were health challenges there as well. So you all really use that as a way to say, like, sometimes it's literally a physical wake up call that you experience in your life. Most of the times, probably not going to be that, but you want the book to be that for people. And, and, you know, talk about that idea of needing kind of a wake up call in order to really take action when it comes to things like this, because obviously there is, it's a huge thing to change your, the financial trajectory that you're on, but feeling like this book can really at least start to motivate people to put themselves on that path. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think it really sprouted from, um, you know, just so many of the conversations that we've had about money with people, both solicited and, and unsolicited, and, and just sort of what you learn uh, throughout that process. I would imagine many of the educators have a very similar uh, experience where, you know, you may have been given, let's say, this particular path to way that something needs to be taught, but the more you teach it, the more you learn, and as a result, you start to tweak things. And we just naturally learned that a lot of people, especially when it comes to money, um, they already know better, right? So even when they pick up that book, this isn't the very first time in many cases that they're learning about money. In some cases, they're relearning about money. And in a lot of cases, they need to unlearn many of the things that they've already sort of been um, influenced by throughout their lives, whether it's their parents or their guardians or their neighborhood or their brothers or whatever it is. And so you're talking to someone, especially like in their 20s, they've got two decades of a understanding of how money works and what it does for you and that sort of thing. Uh, that often comes with it. And so we realize that a lot of times, like simply telling them, providing them with a, a data point is not going to be enough. Um, I oftentimes tell the story that is kind of cringeworthy, but like when I go to the barbershop, which is not nearly often enough, but like when I go to the barbershop and the guys get to talking and someone gets to talking about money and I share a, st a statistic from McKinsey or something that I read in the Wall Street Journal, <laughs> No disrespect to, to to their interests, but they don't want to hear that. They're like, get out of here. Like, you know right. what I mean? Like they're way Next more interested yeah, in something charts. else, right? Like, no, because somebody was just in here and they showed them their phone and they did really good on crypto. And that's all that matters to them in that moment, right? And so unfortunately, because of this so much misinformation being spread out there, like a lot of times you really got to shake people up a little bit. And we also use the reference, um, and I apologize in advance if this is triggering for anyone, we have it in our, in our family as well. But when you have someone in your life that has a cancer diagnosis, more often than not, there is a full stop. There is an agreement that we are going to change. We are at least going to attempt to stop fight. this thing. We yeah. agree that we're going to fight this thing, right? And when I'm in it together, and even if I'm not the one that's sick, if it's someone that's in my family, I'll take you to chemo. I will make sure that you get I'll Organize the meal training. I'll organize the meal. We will do all these things to show the might and, and the commitment from our community, yet we don't think about financial struggles or, or, or 
address financial struggles or debt or any of those things with the same level of ferocity, right? So that's a cultural, social issue, right? Like we know that we have the power to change these things, uh, but we just don't treat, treat it with the same level of seriousness as we do something like that, even though you could argue that both could arguably be life or death situations, right? One's just probably a little slower than the other. And so that's why we really decided to start with the wake up call, because we know that we're talking to really smart people. We're talking to educated people. We're talking to people who already kind of know better. What they need is somewhat of an emotional trigger in order to sort of wake something up inside of them. Yeah, I like that, the emotional trigger part, because a lot of times it's some type of emotional distress that's blocking sure. and, you, and you need to get there to the root of that. One of the things I notice um, is that 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 sandwich generation struggle, right, where you are dealing with these issues with your parents, also trying to create, you know, in, uh, fire for yourself. And then you got your baby, you got both. So now you have three generations that you are tasked with creating generational wealth for three generations. And I know that can be so overwhelming. I'm so lucky to not like have to be thinking yet about like the third generation. I'm just thinking about my parents and myself. And even that is overwhelming for me. So I can only imagine if I'm constantly thinking forward too, as well as present and back. So Talk a little bit about that, because I feel like for, for a lot of people that I talk to, that tends to be the thing where they're like, it's, I just can't like, it's not realistic. I have to think about my parents. I got to set myself up. I also got my kids like it's too much. Yeah. And, you know, that can be the emotional piece where they decided and, and have feelings that make them believe that it's not possible because of that struggle of juggling three generations at the same time. Yeah, the sandwich generation is very real. I, um, for those that aren't familiar with the sandwich generation, it's a phenomena that affects about 50 million Americans. And it's the result of a generation being underfunded for retirement and not necessarily having a plan. You've got social security that is being depleted and you've got the rising cost of living where even if you had a plan, it wasn't enough because when you made your plan, you didn't anticipate rent to be where it is or eggs or bacon or gas or whatever we've got going on. So you're taking care of an older generation. You're closing the gap. You're filling the gap between their savings, social security, and what it actually costs to age in this country, which is an astronomical cost if you haven't looked at it yet. And then you've got this younger generation that comes with their own set of needs. You've got caregivers that are stretched. You've got, again, daycare prices that are the size of a mortgage. You've got all of the needs of, of children and a workplace that isn't accommodating to maternal and paternal leaves and, you know, you calling out sick or needing to deal with your kids. And so you've got all these things compounding and you are in the middle. You are the meat. You are, or the peanut butter and jelly for <laughs> non-meat eaters. <laughs> you are in the middle and you just feel the squeeze. And it is something that is affecting so many of us. I'm in a group on Facebook and I'm with all of these people who are from different walks of life. They're all different ages, 60, 70, still taking care of their parents who are 88, 90, and trying to balance it with their 11-year-olds who have soccer games and things like that. And it's just a group where we kind of commiserate. <laughs> it's called, I think it's called the Sandwich Generation on Facebook for those that want to join me there. But we just kind of commiserate. There's no solution yet. And so it's really just a matter of community and listening and sharing and crowdsourcing different opinions and ways and approaches of dealing with with this challenge i forgot your question you know <laughs> no just speaking to that fact that a lot of people see that as the reason why they can't 
do yes. this, you know, yes. so they, they, they see it as a barrier. Yeah. And it's, it's certainly a hurdle, right? But it's not a barrier. It doesn't make it impossible. It becomes a creative challenge. And honestly, it lights a fire under me to use my voice and the time that I have to advocate for better policies, because this is one of those things that affects you regardless of race, sex, gender, region. It's just the nature of our country right now. And so it, it, it does make it very difficult, but it certainly does not make it impossible. Yeah, no, I love that. Uh, a hurdle, not a barrier. I'm going to take that one with me. Um, one of the things also that comes up for me, at least, because I do have conversations constantly uh, with people. And I was getting a haircut one time and I was talking to the girls with my hair. She's like, oh, I see your YouTube. I see you also talking about personal. Fire. I need help. I want to get I want to start investing for my kid. And I was like, oh, yeah, let's talk. We have a couple options. You know, what are the goals for this money? You know, what do you want to do with it? And then once we start talking about it, we're like, okay, she's like, well, but the problem is I can't really afford that, that I can't really afford it. And then I'm like, okay, well, what could you do to be able to find, even if it's 20 or 30 bucks and oh, well, you know, we're going to Sesame place and then doing this giant birthday party and then all this stuff. And in my mind, I'm like, it is very hard to keep a straight face when you're telling me that you're prioritizing a trip to Sesame Place over investing for your kid because for me with my values that wouldn't align but for her it makes perfect sense because she's creating memories with her child and doesn't yet understand the value of the compounding that's going to happen in that investment account from baby's age four to age 30. So it was kind of hard for me to have that conversation with her but it led me to think about all the other people doing this this, this same thing where they're prioritizing things that show people I'm good. You know, we, we got this whole trip to Sesame Place. I'm going to post pictures on Facebook and on social, on Instagram. I want everyone to know that I did my baby's birthday right. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I also have, you know, name brand clothes and shoes and I take vacations to nice places. And it's like, I have this nice apartment, look where I live. And all of these things, it's like money is so loud for people yes. who live like that. But yet they're like really struggling actually underneath it all. And so it leads me to the idea that you all bring up, um, which is stealth wealth. And you say that it's one of the three principles to cashing out. You, you really can't really can think about cashing out if you don't start with this idea of, cash, of stealth wealth. So talk to us about that concept. What does it mean? Uh, how does it look? And why is it important to start there uh, when it comes to cashing out? Yeah, so it is, uh, it's not an original idea. I, have to, I don't know who created it, but it was something that we were introduced uh, to when we went to uh, Camp Phi, uh, which is exactly what it sounds like, a camp for um, money enthusiasts. I think it was in Northern Florida, uh, and we, it was like four or five years ago, and we were just sitting outside, and a guy mentioned it, and he was just talking about, you know, it's a regular looking guy, you know, like it was not, you know, wearing his wealth by any means. Um, but he was a millionaire, right? And uh, he was very comfortable and we were basically surrounded by like-minded people, people like that. And it was just one of the best experiences that we've had in a really long time. It's one of the few times that we could actually have honest and transparent conversations about money. Um, but it, it's something that we do think is really important for people to uh, wrap their heads around um, because to your point, um, so much of the conversations that people 
I hear about money is so loud and overwhelming to the point where, you know, if you were show two pictures of people and say, which one is rich? Like we already know, like it, it's going to be the person who is dripping down, down. It's the person who's wearing all the things It's the person who has a nice car and the big house and the shiny jewelry, those kinds of things. Uh, we've all been kind of trained uh, to think that way. You Google rich and you will right. see it on the front page of Google. Um, and so there's a very particular image that has been crafted and, and, and reconveyed over the years. And so we really wanted to show people that that's not it, right? That there's that that's maybe one version of it. Uh, and in many cases, that's a false sort of image of what rich actually looks like. And kind of introduce them to Dr. Thomas Stanley's ideas of uh, the millionaire next door, right? Show them what it looks like. And in our case, specifically show them what a black millionaire next door looks like, right? Because that's not the kind of image that you see uh, on a regular basis. You're gonna see much more of, you know, entertainers and actors and musicians and, and athletes and, and people of that nature. Uh, but the problem is those things may be um, aspirational, but there aren't really people that you can relate to. Like you, you know, you're not gonna say, oh, well, I'm, I wanna, I mean, you may say I wanna be like Oprah and LeBron James, but the likelihood that you actually do that is pretty low. And so we thought it was important to show people something that's actually attainable uh, and say, well, yeah, you can enjoy these kinds of freedoms. And I think that's what um, that's what the essence of stealth wealth is all about. It's really just helping people to um, separate the two. Like, yes, these things exist. And if you like them, that's great. But that's not the only image of wealth. The, 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 we just wanted to create a little bit more, uh, let's say, diversity of imagery when people think about what it looks like to be rich. Yeah, I think that the next part, right after you talk about stealth, wealth, and the principles of cashing out, you then move on naturally to the four principles of income. So right. if the only if money is not only serving the purpose of showing off and being flashy and buying all these things that will give you social status and make you feel really good and make people think you're rich, money actually has other purposes. And so you go into that and you, you mentioned four purposes. So security being the first one, flexibility being the next one independence is the third one and finally freedom so mm -hmm. can you talk about those four uh purposes of income and why you start with security and end with freedom yeah yeah it's our uh attempt to teach people a framework to help them overcome consumerism which is you know a huge thing it's what it's the it's the genesis of all of this it's just consumerism this drive to con constantly have more and better things, stuff, just things. It's part of American culture. It is American culture. It's That's what right, our economy, everywhere. any e e e economist, economist, <laughs> economists on the phone, <laughs> people who teach economy, That's you know right. this, this is the economy. Yeah. And so the purpose of income is a way to think about the money that's coming in so that you use it to buy your freedom instead of buy things. And so mm -hmm. the first one, security is exactly what it sounds like. It is ensuring that you're financially secure. You got food in your belly, you got a roof over your head. You can go to doctor's appointments on a regular basis. If you're not able to meet those basic things that you know, kind of solidify your humanity, you're what's called financially insecure. And there are some programs and other, you, you need support, right? Like start there, get secure and then move on. Flexibility is where you start to kind of confront your relationship with com com consumerism. So once you have the baseline of a roof over your head, you obviously have the option to go bigger, to go badder, to go to a different part of the country, to, to get the nicer car, to get the nicer bag. 
And that is where most people get stuck. They get stuck in this constant cycle of flexibility. You always have an option to buy up. I saw a toaster the other day that had Bluetooth. I was like, what do I need Bluetooth (laughs) on my toaster? Like all I needed to do is toast the bread. (laughs) So people get stuck in flexibility. If you can move past flexibility, if you can determine your enough line, where it's just mm. like, man, a different leather bag is not going to hold my stuff anymore. Or even if it is, there's a way that I can shop for it and save for it so that I can afford it in a way that doesn't cause me more debt or harm in the future. It's becoming mm-hmm. really savvy and conscious as a consumer. You can move on to independence. Financial independence is where your investments and your portfolio are generating enough money for you to live off of. You've got dividends, you've got real estate, you've got stock, you've got a retirement portfolio. You feel like you don't have to necessarily trade your time for money because your money is making money on its own. It's invested. And then freedom is that last level, which is not really a, uh, it's not a dollar amount, like financial freedom for different, for it means something different for different people, but it is a feeling. It's an idea. And it's a, it's like a breath of fresh air where you're no longer concerned about money. It's not even a part of your daily or monthly thought process. And it's a really hard concept to grasp because so many of us haven't ever experienced it. A lot of people are realizing that they actually have to leave the country and live somewhere else to be like, oh my gosh, is this what it's like? This is what it's like to feel comfortable resting, like Mm -hmm. actually resting, no cell phone, no emails, no nothing. And so when you teach people that framework with their income, it is the goal to then take the money after you've found your enough, take the money and put it to work so you don't have to. Yeah. And you know, the other thing too, and is this idea that, you know, that that you don't have to work part is it can be a little intimidating for people who feel like maybe that's too aggressive, but even if it doesn't mean that you don't have to, that you have to stop working, it could mean that you work significantly less. Yes. And that can be just as freeing, Absolutely. you know what I mean? For a lot of people who just can't imagine not working ever, yeah. working less is also really freeing. That's my dad's version of financial freedom. Yeah. He technically retired last year, but he still has this little side hustle with an mm-hmm. old client where he does reports for him. Like, and that's freedom for him, where it's just yeah. like, man, I still get to stay busy. I still keep mine sharp and I get a little play money. But he, you know, he, the, the rest of the time he enjoys his life. You know, I think another, uh, another way of looking at that as well is to say, like, finally, you've, you may have gotten to a point in your financial life where you can do the thing that you're actually passionate about yes. and not even have to worry about whether or not it's going to make or replace the kind of income that you used to make before. Right. So you right. see people who used to work that high earning and stressful in, in some cases, unfulfilling career, saving disproportionate amounts of their money so that they can finally pursue the yeah. creative life or the philanthropy or whatever or it is. just be a grandma. Or, or they or, just yeah. want to spend their time and yeah. say, you know what, I want to be there. I want to be a grandma or I right. want to be there to support my grandparents in their older age, Right without having the stress of constantly trying to balance that while also balancing my career. So that's really what it's really about is like helping people get there and going back to your early question, why we're not being so prescriptive because your path is going to be your path. If I just pick one that I know I'm going to be naturally be turning up a bunch Mm -hmm. of other people, it's really just around 
helping people sort of identify that it is possible and then showing them a variety of different ways that they can get there. I love that. Thank you all for joining us. Uh, We knew you were going to drop gems, bring your wisdom and your knowledge, and we can't wait for these teachers to get their copies of Cashy Now. Thank Thank you. you. Thanks for having us. Some housekeeping items before we go. We'll put links to the resources that were mentioned by Julian and Kirsten. We'll include them in the show notes, which you can find at www.ngpf.org forward slash podcast. Better yet, subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Leave us a review, too, if you're a big fan. You know those reviews help get us at the to the top of the list so that our amazing guests are able to reach a larger audience. I want to thank Ren McKino, who produces our podcast and shows eternal patience with me getting him the resources he needs in a timely fashion. Thank you, Ren. So on behalf of Yanelli, Julian, and Kirsten, I want to thank you again for tuning into this NGPF podcast. Have a wonderful week.